Welcome, Welcome from Alpha, from Alpha to, Omega. to Omega. Hello, and welcome to the 29th episode of From Alpha to Omega. Today is Saturday, the 6th of April 2013, and I'm your host, Tom O'Brien. This week's guest is KMO, host of the Sea Realm and Z Realm podcasts, and the author of Conversations on Collapse. We talk at length about zombies, vampires, and apocalyptic collapse, his experiences living on a former commune in Tennessee, his recent move to the sprawling metropolis that is New York City, and his thoughts on the Occupy movement. Before we join the conversation with KMO, I'd just like to let you know that this week's show is, in fact, the first anniversary of the podcast. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank all the guests that have generously donated their time to the show, and to all of you listeners out there for your continuing support. In particular, I'd like to thank all of those who donated money to the show over the past year. Thanks to Mark O'L, Precious J, Paul O.G., John B., Paul B., Simon C., Manuel P., Colin F., David B., Joan O.B., Bill S., Leon T., Jason L., Paul K., Cheryl M., Jeffrey S., Joe the D., James H., Nicole D., Jarek McH., Josh O., Kurt J., Mike W., Paul H., David W., Ambrose A., Robert O.G., Michael T., and Brandon F., Thanks very much for all your pecuniary support. Your donations have really helped the podcast survive those dangerous first 12 months of life. If you'd like to help the show reach full maturity, you can donate to the show's college fund by clicking on the donate button on the podcast website. And you can also follow the show on Twitter or over on Facebook. We join the conversation as KMO tells us why he created a podcast, The Z-Realm, solely about our brain-munching friends, the zombies. It was the, uh, the creation by AMC of the Walking Dead television series. I have loved zombie media. My friend Marty, who does the Flickers from the Cave podcast, he loves zombie media as well. And we had done, I was a guest on his show, we talked about zombies. And that episode was called The Z-Realm. And then when, when AMC, this American cable TV company who makes original programming, they do really good stuff too. They did uh, Breaking Bad and uh, Mad Men. So they do great stuff. So when they announced they were going to be adapting Robert Kirkman's comic strip or comic book, The Walking Dead, to the screen, Marty and I were very excited. And it was my idea to do a podcast that would sort of track the TV show and we would call it The Talking Dead. And we went quite a ways toward creating The Talking Dead. And then I said, you know, maybe we should Google that and make sure somebody else isn't already doing it. And sure enough, somebody was doing it. And then the network created a, a sort of talk show to follow every episode of the drama. And they called their talk show The Talking Dead. So I'm, I'm glad we, we steered clear of that. But yeah, we, we love to talk about zombie movies. So uh, we've been doing that for 50 episodes now. What is the general story then underlying The Walking Dead? Well, in The Walking Dead, it opens with a police officer in a rural town in the American South, and he gets shot in something that is unrelated to the zombie apocalypse, and he is in a coma. And he wakes up in the hospital, and there's nobody around, and he basically wakes up into the aftermath of the zombie apocalypse, which is very similar to the, the movie 28 Days Later. Again, you have somebody who's in an accident, they have a brain injury, they wake up, and the hospital is deserted, and they wander out into the empty streets, and society has obviously collapsed, and nothing is working. And then they encounter somebody that seems to be a person, and then the person attacks them. So that's what we get in The Walking Dead. But then the main character, who is this police officer or sheriff's deputy named Rick Grimes, he decides that he needs to go to Atlanta because that's the nearest big city, and that's where there's going to be a government response. That's where there's going to be some remnant of civilization. Turns out it's the absolute worst thing to do because it is, it is a center for um, the undead. It's where they have congregated, and he does manage to meet up with his, his wife and son and his, uh, his former partner in the sheriff's department, and they collect a group of people, 
And this is something that is is fairly standard for any zombie tale. You have a group of people who didn't know each other before the zombie apocalypse who are thrown together by necessity, and they have to work together to survive. And it turns out that the zombies being utterly stupid and, and very predictable in their behavior, uh, once you can establish a stronghold and meet your basic needs of you know se- securing a source of food and clean water and that sort of thing, that the zombies are pretty easy to deal with. And then the thing that becomes a real problem is your interpersonal relationship with the other people in your group. And frictions arise, and uh, frequently it is the, the living humans who are left who are the real danger to your security, not so much the zombies who just want to eat your flesh. You say that you're, you're new to the whole zombie media phenomenon, but most people, or I guess a great many people, many millions of people are not new to it, and they're very familiar with this archetypal story which is called the zombie apocalypse whereby something and it's different in different stories and it doesn't really need to be explained anymore causes a zombie outbreak whereby people who die reanimate and they are hungry for human flesh and they attack other people and the people that they attack die and reanimate and so you've got this ever-growing zombie horde and civilization comes to a, a screeching halt in a very short period, and the amount of time that it takes depends on the story. Uh, I think one of the the works that brought a lot of credibility to the zombie apocalypse narrative was a novel by Max Brooks called World War Z, which is going to be made into, it has already been made into a film and will be released soon, and I don't have high hopes for the film. They have abandoned the story structure of the novel, which was it takes place after the end of World War Z, which was this world war against the zombies. And the humans won. We know this from the beginning. And it's just a collection of oral history documents that the author, Max Brooks, has traveled around for the United Nations collecting these stories of people who were involved in the zombie war. So it takes place in a variety of different countries with people who some are civilians, some are in the military, uh, some are government officials. And there's a great chapter about the head of an organization called the uh, Department of Strategic Services, which basically democracy is out the window. What remaining government there is is strictly devoted to fighting the zombie war. And so all resources that can be used in this fight have been confiscated and are being allocated. And there's a basically a, a, a strong peak oil message there talking about how society runs on gasoline. And when gasoline becomes a scarce commodity, Basically, bipedal locomotion is how people get around. And there was an audiobook of World War Z that was recorded with a lot of different celebrity narrators. And Alan Alda, a Hawkeye from MASH, is the reader in that chapter. So he is the voice behind the character of this government official who is basically trying to coordinate the use of resources in a disaster scenario and trying to balance individual rights, property rights, that sort of thing, with the obvious need to coordinate resources. I was wondering if you heard that the uh, US Center for Disease Control and Prevention published a leaflet called Preparedness 101 Zombie Apocalypse and How to Survive a Zombie Invasion. I was, yes. There have been a number of academic studies about the spread of a, a zombie outbreak because it is an epidemiological spread. That's the pattern that it follows. It's the same as, say, cholera or swine flu. It's, it's person-to-person transmission. I suppose cholera is different because it, it gets into the water supply and people get infected that way. But say like bird flu or, or swine flu, it's the same sort of pattern of propagation of the virus. And so the various studies that have been done have mostly come to the same conclusion that if you're faced with a zombie outbreak, the thing to do is respond to it immediately with overwhelming force and squash it at the outset. Because if you let it get beyond a certain critical threshold, all hope is lost. And that is one of the themes in that Max Brooks novel, World War Z, because when the phenomenon first starts off, and it starts in China, the Chinese government denies it. They try to cover it up rather than enlisting international aid and expertise in dealing with the problem. And all governments do this at first. At first, they discount the problem. And then when they come to understand it, uh, they try to hide it from their populace. And then once things are completely out of control, then they have to resort to these really sort of draconian means of sacrificing certain portions of their populations in order to establish, basically using 
parts of their population as bait to draw the zombie hordes away so they can establish a, a command center where the government can, can maintain continuity of government and continue to have a sort of coordinated response to the zombie apocalypse. As you can tell, it's, it's something I've spent a lot of time thinking about. How many series is this going over? And is it a major series in America? Is it very popular? It is incredibly popular. The third season, and there's a, a bit of a TV terminology difference between the, the British Isles and the United States. What you would call a series, we call a season. And so The Walking Dead has just ended its third season. The first season was very brief. There was only six episodes. And that's because the network didn't have great confidence that it, the show would find an audience. And they didn't want to spend a lot of money up front. But it was an enormous hit. It was the biggest hit for AMC that they've ever had. You know, in the current media environment, there are so many different channels, so many different offerings that capturing just a couple million viewers with, with any episode is a great achievement. And The Walking Dead has far surpassed all expectations for it. It's very, very popular. And so the third season has just ended. The, the second and third seasons were, I think, 16 episodes each. You know, people have got, uh, who've been following it, have 40 or more hours invested in this thing. And I actually, um, if you ever listen to episodes of the Z-Rom podcast, I'm not an uncritical fan of this thing. I, I have my complaints about it. But it is the only zombie show on TV, and all of my complaints are in the writing. Because the technical execution of this thing is just flawless. It, it is astounding. There's a guy named uh, Greg Nicotero who is very well known in the film industry for special effects makeup. And he's done a lot of work on zombie films in the past. And he is a regular behind-the-camera presence at The Walking Dead, and he sometimes directs episodes. They have some episodes which are only available on the web. So if you go to amc.com, I think that's it, but the, the AMC website, and you look for The Walking Dead section, you can find two series of webisodes that were directed by this guy, Greg Nicotero. And they don't feature the uh, the primary cast of the film. These are sort of side stories that are set in the same world, but they give you a good flavor for what's happening. You know, what what the collapse of civilization due to a zombie apocalypse looks like. I was wondering if you if we could talk about how the zombie has changed in its form over the years it's been depicted. The zombie, I mean, the word zombie refers to somebody in, in Haitian voodoo lore who has been captured, spiritually captured by a, a voodoo priest and either actually been brought back from the dead or has been tricked into thinking they died and they have been brought back. But they are essentially a slave and they are used as slave labor. And with George Romero's 1968 film, Night of the Living Dead, he never used the word zombie in the script, but he had people coming back from the dead, uh, shambling around, seeking human flesh to devour. And he sort of mixed archetypes. He took something that could be considered a vampire, and he was actually very much inspired by the novel I Am Legend, which is about a zombie apocalypse-style collapse of civilization, but in that novel, the, the creatures are called vampires, and they still retain some human intelligence, the ability to speak, that sort of thing. And he's stripped them of all intelligence, all humanity, and they are just reduced to a need to feed on the flesh of the living. And he uses this framework to make points about racism in the United States. The, the main character is an African-American man who is caught up with a group of, of white people and they're trying to defend themselves against the zombie onslaught in a house out in the country. 
And by the morning, the civil authorities have regained control of the situation. They've shot most of the zombies, and you have to destroy the brain to take them down. Just shots to the, the chest or the gut or whatnot won't really affect a zombie. And in the end of the film, the only person left alive in this house is this black man. And he goes to the window, and there's a sheriff and his deputies outside. They're shooting zombies, and they see this man in the window. And it's not clear whether they mistake him for a zombie or they just use the excuse of all this mayhem to shoot a black man, but they end up shooting him. He, he survives the night only to be killed by people in the morning, by humans, which goes back to the, uh, what I said earlier, that the zombies, once you figure out how to evade the zombies and how to keep them out of your living space, they're not the problem. Living people are the problem. I, I sort of got off your question there, but your question is, how has the zombie archetype changed? So initially the zombie was a slave, but with Night of the Living Dead, the zombie has changed to become a menace. Your environment turns threatening, and it is the people who used to be, you know, all around you and who used to be what makes the society work. You know, everybody's efforts being coordinated through commerce, through technology, and just through social mores and laws and customs. All of that is wiped away because a zombie can't operate with any of that. And all of the people who used to have all of these complex behaviors that can give rise to what we would call civilization are now just predatory animals who are looking to eat you. And that was never the case with zombies before Night of the Living Dead. And since Night of the Living Dead, it has been the case. So that's, that's the major, major change that George Romero and all of the people who copied him affected in the folklore about zombies. And it's a unique film genre because the bar to entry is very low. You can do a zombie apocalypse story basically in a room with a couple people just talking about what's happening outside, and then maybe you have a, a few shots of people in zombie makeup, which is easy to do on an amateur budget and without enormous special effects acumen. So there have been a lot of very low-budget zombie films, most of which are utterly derivative and utterly forgettable. But if, you, if you're churning out a whole lot of films in a certain genre, you're going to get a few gems, and that's certainly what's happened with the zombie apocalypse genre. The George Romero film I remember seeing, I think, was Dawn of the Dead. I think in the end, it ended up a lot of it being based in a shopping mall somewhere in America and the zombies trying to get in and attack. Romero seems to have used the zombie archetype as, as a political device again and again in his films. Very much so. Yeah, that, that mall actually is the Monroeville Mall. It's uh, near Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. George Romero lives in Pittsburgh. And there is a comic shop in the basement of that mall that has a zombie museum in the back. And I made a pilgrimage there uh, in 2010. What was it like? It's easy to miss. In fact, I was walking around looking for it. And I asked one of the security guards at an information booth where it was. And she had never heard of it. But they have some props from original zombie films. And there's a lot of information there. It's, it's a pretty small basically just in the back of a comic shop. So it's, it's not anything that anybody would go out of their way to find unless they're just obsessed with the topic as I am. You, we talk about how Romero used them as a kind of a, an archetype for making a kind of a political point. Does the zombie still play that role? Or has it kind of just morphed away from maybe its origin now into just a generic gowl or ghoul or whatever? There's so much zombie media that a lot of it is just entertainment and a lot of it is making points about human nature, but some of it is very political, but very few people are as openly political with their zombie media as George Romero. The film that you're referring to, Dawn of the Dead, the civilization at large is going to hell in a handbasket and our group of protagonists lock themselves up inside of a shopping mall, they clear out the zombies, they secure the entrances, and then they ignore the chaos outside and they go to the stores and they take all the cash out of the registers and they put on jewelry and, you know, fine clothing and they sit around and they play high stakes poker with all this money and they just lose themselves in consumer opulence while the world around them goes to hell. And people look at the fact that the zombies go to the shopping mall and just walk around in circles at the mall as being the message of the film. You know, that, that people are so mindlessly trained to go to the mall and to consume that that's what they do after they're dead. But I think that the, the real message of the film is the attempt of the people who still have the ability to make rational choices, who basically ignore the problems of the larger world and just attend to their own comfort. 
what do you think then of the vampire phenomenon and, and how it ties in with, say, the zombie? The vampire phenomenon is aimed at a different demographic. It is aimed at uh, teenage girls, and I just it doesn't hold much appeal for me. So the reason why I ask is it seems strange that there is such an interest in bloodsuckers and brain eaters, given today we've got science dominating a lot of of our thoughts like why do you think there's a reversion to kind of maybe a mythology or something do you think there's anything in it well i haven't given the vampire phenomenon all that much thought as i say the media doesn't appeal to me it is filled with psychological hooks meant to hook somebody with a very different uh, hormonal profile than mine but the vampire is not a mindless eating machine like a zombie. A vampire is an immortal being who, in all likelihood, was uh, chosen and deliberately made into a vampire by another vampire because there was something appealing about them as a human being. Either they were beautiful, or they were brilliant, or they were charming. But the vampire is somebody who, because he lives for so long, and because he can manipulate the living and get living people to do his or her bidding in the daytime. They can amass vast wealth. They can be very cultured people. You know, they have been, they've probably hobnobbed with the, the creative geniuses of the human society for hundreds of years. And so they're a very different character. They're a very charismatic character. They're something that you would most likely want to become. And the only qualm that you might have is that you have to drink the blood of living people in order to maintain yourself this way. But uh, as with the elites in our own world, they're more than willing to make that trade-off. And they're, they're willing to sacrifice the people in society that they regard as disposable. And there's certainly no lack of, of disposable people. And I'm thinking, most of what I'm talking about now, I'm just drawing from the, uh, the writing of Anne Rice. She wrote The Vampire Lestat and uh, Interview with a Vampire... I haven't really followed the, the Twilight novels or the films made by them. and But the zombies, very different, very different. It's The zombie is the people that used to make life worth living, or at least that used to make your society work, have become the major threat in your environment. And you have to respond immediately if you were to survive. And the people who do survive, I, I think with the zombie, you're not focused so much on the zombies as you are on the collapse of civilization that results from the zombie plague. And because the zombie is clearly impossible, then people who are not really willing to look at, say, oh, peak oil, global warming, or financial collapse, they can still work out their fear about the potential collapse of civilization if it's based on an impossible premise. If it's based on an impossible premise, it doesn't require you to take any action, but you can still examine the anxiety that you're feeling because I think a lot of people who don't understand the fragility or the possible failure modes of industrial civilization, they still have an intuitive feeling that what they're told is uh, very robust and, and very resilient isn't nearly as robust or resilient as we're led to believe. So I've just finished reading Marx's Das Kapital myself and throughout that he talks about how capital is dead labour which vampire-like lives only by sucking living labour and lives and lives the more labour it sucks. Do you think that maybe there's something in these vampire and zombie memes, if you call them that, that somehow a reflection maybe of our current political and economic systems? Well, I certainly think there's an element of that, particularly with, with George Romero's films. You know, the, the one we were talking about was uh, Dawn of the Dead, but the next two films that he did, uh, Day of the Dead, where society has long since fallen and there's just one little outpost left that is manned by U.S. Army soldiers and scientists, and that's a very political film, very dark. And then the next one, Land of the Dead, you've got basically a city which has been secured by humans and it is surrounded by rivers on three sides and gated on another side. And they make their living by sending this big armored vehicle out into the countryside to raid stores, basically. And back in the city, you have this really egregious disparity between uh, people who live up in this high-rise condo building called Fiddler's Green, who wear nice suits and have all the luxuries and then all the people who are living in poverty on the streets and you have a very small society where there is no obscuring the injustice 
with these vast financial systems, but you, you still have this incredible disparity of, of wealth and privilege. So yeah, there's, there's a very strong political component in some of this media. Other examples of it, they're not interested in that level of analysis. If you listen to the, the first episode of the Z-Rome podcast, you'll hear Marty and I both describing what it is we find so fascinating about this topic. And uh, a lot of what I've said here is you'll find in that first episode, but then there's a lot there that I haven't, I haven't covered. But the thing that stands out for me, and it's not particularly a, a political point as a, a sort of psychological one and possibly even, I don't know, a, a spiritual point, but when the zombie apocalypse unfolds, groups of people are thrown together by necessity and they have to work together in order to survive and to secure a living for themselves in this radically changed environment. And there is a recognition because the zombies were people. They still have a human form. They are still wearing human clothing. It's just their mentality and their behavior, which is utterly alien. And the people who band together in order to defend themselves, they can recognize one another as still having some spark of humanity, even though they might really radically disagree with these people. They might be from antagonistic social castes or racial castes. They might be thrown together with people that in ordinary pre-collapse civilization, they would have no interest in interacting with. And yet there's something that they can sense about these people that says, here is somebody that I have to get along with, that I have to work with for my own survival. And it's just an instant recognition. And there's the idea that various people in magical traditions and some mystical traditions have, have postulated that some percentage of the population, and it's usually a, the vast majority of the population, are not real people. They're not ensouled beings. They are automatons of some kind. They might be thought forms created by evil wizards, uh, tulpas. They might be oh, some sort of alien or some sort of slave race or, or basically zombies. And even in, in the philosophy of mind, you have what uh, the Australian philosopher David Chalmers calls the, uh, the P-zombie or the philosophical zombie, who is somebody whose behavior and physical makeup is identical to a normal person, but they have no interior life. So they speak, they, they have jobs, they have families, they do everything that normal people do, but unlike you and I, they don't have any subjective experience of what they're doing. They're just doing it. It's, it's an appealing notion from a sort of self-congratulatory, you know, elitist intellectual perspective to say, oh, I am a real ensouled person, I have thoughts, I have real insight into what I'm seeing, and most of these other people that I encounter out in the world, they're just behavioral robots. They are responding to stimulus. They're carrying out a behavioral program that is given to them by their culture and by the nightly news. And I have a spark that they don't have. And the people that I like out in the world, the people that I really interact with and, and have a good feeling about, they have that spark too. And so the, the zombie apocalypse is another, th this is another conceit that it allows the audience to indulge in without actually admitting it to themselves. That I identify with the living humans who are left on screen. And because they are like me, they're special in a world where there's billions of people, more people than I could possibly know as individuals or care about. And the people that I do know and care about, they're the real people. And the people that are just out there who are competitors with me and my, my people, they're not real people. And even more than not being real people, they're such a corrupt entity. They are so debased by their condition that if I were to take a shotgun and shoot them in the head, I'd be doing them a favor and I'd be making the world a better place. May you see it's not me, it's not my family in your head.
when I first came across your podcast, it was when I was getting interested in, in peak oil and resource constraints. And at the time, you were living down in Tennessee on a communal farm, if I'm right. But you've re- relocated to New York in the last year, right to the eye of the zombie economic collapse. What, what was your thinking there? I was in love with a woman who lived here, and I, I moved here to uh, to be with her. But I, I did do a little bit of soul searching. I had moved, I had been living at the Eco Village Training Center on the farm in Summertown, Tennessee. The farm is a former hippie commune. They were a commune from their founding in 1971 up through 1983 when they decollectivized and they instituted basically a new economic order which was far less idealistic in terms of embracing capitalism, embracing money, and they had a population of about 1,500 in 1982, and after what they called the changeover, which is also called the exodus in their own personal history and mythology, they went to fewer than 200 adults living in that same space because they changed the rules from being a commune to where everything is shared equally to basically honoring private property and money and saying, if you want to stay here, you have to pay. And if you want to build a house here, well, you don't own the land. We'll give you a place where you can build your house. But since you don't own the land, you can't get a mortgage. So really, it it went from being a commune where penniless people could go and find a place to being a place where you actually had to have a fair amount of money and resources at your disposal in order to make it work. And because they've adopted that new dynamic, it is very difficult for young people to find a, a foothold there. So it's it's an aging community. And they're very dependent upon fossil fuels. They don't do any farming anymore, and they don't want anybody to do any farming there. So while I was I really like the Eco Village Training Center, and I like certain aspects of the farm. It's definitely not a model for sustainability or for resilience in a collapse scenario. What was their thinking behind such a, a rejection of their initial foundational principles? If they hadn't reorganized the way they had, they would have lost the property. They were in a lot of debt, and if they hadn't changed gears and stopped spending so much on the people who weren't bringing in any money, then the community wouldn't be there today. So what they did was a necessary compromise with the existing economic order. And now that they're much older, they remember those early days, which were very hard. You know, they were, they were actually farming. They were trying to feed themselves, and they were trying to operate outside of the, the money system and the coercive aspects of, of the larger economy. But it was incredibly difficult. It is very, very difficult to compete with industrial civilization particularly when you're still on the hook to meet certain obligations of industrial civilization. So to them, those were the bad old days of austerity that they don't want to go back to. And I, I certainly don't blame them for that. I, I, as a young or younger person, this was the ironic thing. I was in my early 40s when I was there, and I was a very young face on the farm. But had I been there in 1972, I would have been regarded with suspicion because I was so old. The, the folks who, who live there are not they are not willing to return to that previous existence that they tried in the 1970s and which in some respects failed. Certainly they learned a lot and enough of what they did was uh, was documented that they have been able to teach quite a bit. Whenever I talk about the farm and my experiences there, I, I, I tend to come off as being rather negative and judgmental about the solution that you know they have adopted. While I want to point out the things that I think of as contradictions, I'm, I'm very grateful that I had that time there, and I certainly don't want to burn any bridges. I think that what they did was a noble experiment, and while it didn't have the results that an idealist might have insisted that they, they demand upon, uh, it was still worth doing. Dmitry Orlov wrote a blog post that I think summarizes the situation very well. This is a, a couple years back, at least, but he was saying that the things that are workable after collapse are unacceptable before collapse. So the sorts of social arrangements which will be resilient in a collapse scenario, we we outlaw in the pre-collapse scenario. So we require that people adhere to certain codes. We require that they do things in a certain way, even if that way isn't logically necessary, it isn't certainly isn't efficient. It's necessary in order to honor the authority of, say, people who enforce building codes or the authority of people who are enforcing the prohibition against certain drugs. 
So the the social organization of the the neighborhood drug dealer and his gang affiliations, this is a very it's it's informal but it's very resilient. And after a collapse, you know, if if money stopped working, if people's debit cards were suddenly useless, if their credit cards were useless, and there was just not that medium of exchange available, the the social capital that people living in the informal economy have created and rely upon to get by in the informal economy will become very workable. And the things that people used to rely on in the formal economy will be utterly useless. And they will be scrambling to adopt something of you know, the people who are used to living in the informal economy. But until the collapse, the things that will be workable after the collapse are completely beyond the pale in terms of what normal civilized people would consider acceptable. Getting to the peak oil phenomenon, what are your current thoughts on that, given that your show has taken a kind of a detour away from its emphasis on the peak oil collapse scenario that was quite prominent maybe a year or two ago? Well, I think that there is no more oil in the ground now than there was two years ago. But I don't think that we're facing a fast collapse because of peak oil. I think that we're we're facing what John Michael Greer would call a catabolic collapse, where you have a sort of stair-step collapse and a series of collapses and then partial recoveries. And during the periods of partial recovery, it will look like growth has returned and that we're back on an upward trajectory, but it won't last. And there'll be another, another correction and another sort of tightening up a little later on. And uh, John Michael Greer thinks that that process can basically unfold over the, the course of a century. There will be several human lifetimes lived within that period. I mean, they're overlapping. They're, they're generations that take place in that period where that slow degradation is just the environment in which people live, and it, it won't seem dramatic. And so something that I was telling people when I would do uh, couch surfing book tours and people who are interested in peak oil is don't expect any vindication for your early adoption of the peak oil mindset. Uh, don't expect any news story to come out that says peak oil was has been proven correct, that even when we are definitely facing and, and dealing with the repercussions of a constrained energy supply, there are going to be very professional voices saying everything is okay, everything is about to be set back on the, the upward trajectory, we're about to return to prosperity and growth, and that it will be believed. So... I think there's enough peak oil material in the CREM archive that I don't have a lot more to add to it. And I think it's it's very important not to overstress the potential for a fast collapse because of peak oil, because that attracts people who are not so much interested in acquiring a better understanding of our situation in terms of physical resources so that we can make more informed policy choices. They're more just attracted to the doom. And I call it doomer porn. And I, I have been a consumer of doomer porn, and I have certainly been a purveyor of doomer porn. And I think I passed the point where that's at all useful. And it's it's an addiction that I don't want to uh, to feed in other people. And it's something that I'm certainly not interested in stoking in myself anymore. <laughs> remember when you were thinking of moving to New York, you were talking about how excited you were about hopefully getting involved in the Occupy movement. By the time you maybe you got to New York, it seems like the movement had died somewhat. What was your experience like in New York when you tried to get involved with all that? <laughs> I have to admit, I, I haven't made a great effort to get involved with the Occupy movement. One, because it's not as visible as it used to be. 
It's rather diffuse now, but it certainly still exists. And there was great excitement about what form Occupy would take in, you know, once the weather got warm in the spring of 2012. And it just never really took any visible form like it did in the late summer of 2011 and into the fall of 2011. And it seemed like the Occupy movement had fizzled out and was really nothing until Hurricane Sandy hit New York and large portions of the city were left without power, large portions of the city were left without essential services. And then the some of it was Occupy Wall Street, but some of it was just uh, ad hoc, grassroots, spontaneous social organization that I think was informed by the experience of Occupy Wall Street and which emulated the leaderless sort of flat organizational structure of Occupy Wall Street and responded very effectively to people in need, people who were not being serviced by FEMA, which is the Federal Emergency Management Agency, or by the city of New York or by the state of New York. And so to me, that was the most exciting thing about Occupy Wall Street was the fact that it had prepared the way for this spontaneous on-the-ground response by people in a position to help who didn't get paid to help, who didn't take their orders from anybody in positions of authority. I think they demonstrate uh, something that science fiction author David Brin has been saying for years now, which is that the, the most effective response on the ground immediately in the aftermath of the 9-11 attacks here in New York came from not the official protector castes, you know, not from the federal government, not from the military, not from the police, but by ordinary citizens empowered with communications technologies, particularly cell phones and the internet, to coordinate a response and to do what needed doing in the moment. And I think that that's, it's a very promising indicator of the types of societal organization that we might be seeing more of in the future and more sort of elaborate and, and ongoing, but still informal responses to what are undoubtedly going to be a series of, of seeming crises. Occupy itself is not such a great thing, but it's a great model, I think. It's an exemplar of something hopeful. So when the state kind of came together to shut down all the different Occupy encampments across the country, it looks like that they took away, they cut off the source of the, the power for the Occupy movement. Do you think that there is any way that they can try and change the formulation of the movement in such a way that it's not so easily destroyed? The problem, one problem, I mean, there's, there's obviously many problems. And when I say the problem that I'm, I'm putting an oversimplistic frame on it, but what I saw as a problem was that the Occupy movement at first was completely ignored by the mainstream media, and it was completely ignored by the established political left in the United States, and the, the protest-oriented left as well, the old guard politically-oriented protest left, ignored Occupy Wall Street. And then when Occupy Wall Street obviously had gained some a foothold in the public imagination, then the, the organized and established voices of leftist protest descended on New York and tried to help Occupy Wall Street. And by help, they meant take charge of it, take control of it, uh, basically give it the sort of discipline that it had lacked. But the discipline, the lack of discipline, the lack of coherent message, the lack of demands was part of the strength of Occupy, I thought. And there are people who are very, very critical of Occupy for that exact reason, that in rejecting the traditional uh, tools and methodologies of protest in a democracy, they basically gave all of their power away. And I, I can agree with that to some extent, but Douglas Rushkoff, who's somebody that I've interviewed a few times over the years, and again just recently, he took a very different take on it. And he said that the Occupy Wall Street movement exemplified one extreme of this phenomenon he calls present shock, where we're not really leaning forward into the future anymore. We don't have this date in our minds of the future. Like for most of my life, the year 2000 was in the future. And that date, the year 2000 represented the future and dates after that was in the future and dates before that was, you know, technically still in the future, but also in the 20th century in this familiar world and that there was going to be this, this great transformation. And 2000 came and went and that didn't really happen. And then the, the 2012 meme sort of 
picked up some speed and and people started to think well there's going to be this great transformation in 2012 and then that came and went and now we're just in a position where the singularitarians are are pinning their hopes on 2030 or 2045 for a technological singularity but that's not very mainstream right now and most people don't have any date in the future that they're looking forward to and it seems like well the future is here the future is now and so i'm not really going to put off my ambitions any longer i want what i'm entitled to right now you know i don't want to invest my money in a company or in government bonds that's going to pay some piddling return over years i want to double my money today and i want to triple it tomorrow and so we're attracted to you know, ever increase, increasingly abstract financial schemes and, and not really investing in physical enterprise anymore. And there's a certain just loss of, of patience, a loss of a willingness to work now for reward in the future. And the Occupy movement was the exact opposite of that. It was, we're going to be so annoyingly patient here that it's going to drive the authorities and our critics insane. And even the people who would want it to help us by giving us some discipline and giving us some direction and giving us money, we're going to drive them insane by being just utterly patient and engaging in these general assemblies, which are exercises in patience, because it takes so long to cover any particular topic and anybody in the group at any time can basically hold up the procedures indefinitely by by blocking something by saying no I'm 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 relying my on my absolute veto power to let this discussion go any further and it requires an enormous level of patience which I think is good practice because right now we have all of this electronic media and the, the corporate media which conditions us to expect constant stimulation and conditions us to expect a resolution to any question posed within either 22 minutes in the case of a half-hour block or in like 47 minutes in the case of a, a one-hour block of programming. Whatever questions are raised in that time, we have to have our, our conflict, we have to have our reasoning, we have to have our sort of interpersonal wrangling all come together and resolve the issue. And of course, maybe some violence, a gunfight, car chase. It all has to come together within that time frame and be utterly resolved. And the Occupy movement was saying, we don't expect any sort of resolution. We're just going to sit here and tell you that, one, the system as you present it is not working. Two, life for a certain strata of the population and a growing strata of the population is very hard. And the resources and the safety nets that we thought were in place to protect us are not there. And we're just going to sit here and be visible and make you live with the reality of the situation. And I think that's what was so intolerable. And that's why we had this coordinated effort by mayors and uh, federal authorities in various cities all on the same day to go in and, and crush the camps, to evacuate the camps by force, to seize the libraries, to seize computers, to destroy all of the infrastructure that had grown up around this this activity, which was basically, we're just going to sit here and be visible and make you aware of the vast disparity in, in opportunity and in reward that this society not only has tolerated, but even celebrates. And I think that was the strength of the Occupy movement. What do you see happening in, in the near future in New York around that whole scene? Do you have any hopes for it at all? Or do you think that its moment has come and passed? I think for that particular brand, Occupy Wall Street, I think its day has come and gone. But I think that they have pioneered, not necessarily pioneered, but they have carried forward a, a long-standing progression uh, that involves mutual aid, that involves people using the new technologies not to make money, not to become famous, not to build companies or, or things like that, but to communicate with each other to affect the, the mindset that is uh, so carefully tended and gardened by the corporate media. You know, the belief system of, of the United States and of the industrialized countries of the world is a belief in progress, a belief in economic growth, a belief in a, you know, upwards and onwards, just everything gets better and better trajectory. And I think that the Occupy Wall Street movement and various human activities which pattern themselves on that same style of interaction 
are basically providing us with an example of how we cannot tear each other's throats out when we finally come to the inevitable realization that what we've been promised is not going to come to pass, that this is not a temporary inconvenience, that all of the people who are out of work are not you know, temporarily inconvenienced and embarrassed millionaires. And we have this, this mythology in the United States that everybody can be a millionaire, everybody can be a rock star, everybody can be a movie star, everybody can be the president. It's not true. And I think the machinery that, that reinforces this mythology is still operating at full strength. And even operating at full strength, it's failing to achieve its objective as well as it did in the past. And that I think its strength will continue to degrade and falter as the alternative means of people talking to each other and sharing information with each other grow stronger. And I'm, I'm pretty excited about that. I don't have any short-term predictions as to what that will look like because it's, it's such a complex non-linear sort of engine that it's going to, just by definition, it's going to throw out all manner of non-linear and unexpected effects, some of which will be catastrophic and awful, but some of which will be really amazing. Well, KMO, thanks very much for coming on the show today. It has been my pleasure. Thank you for, uh, for chatting and thank you for doing the editing. Zombie, oh zombie. Zombie, oh zombie. Zombie, oh zombie. Zombie no go go unless you tell him to go. Zombie, zombie no go stop unless you tell him to stop. Zombie, zombie no go turn unless you tell him to turn. Zombie, zombie no go think unless you tell him to think. Zombie, zombie oh zombie. Zombie oh zombie. On this episode, you heard the theme tune. The Order of the Pharaonic Jesters by Sunra and his orchestra, the trailer for the Walking Dead TV show, and the Cranberries singing Zombies. You also heard John Lennon going through cold turkey. And you are now listening to the fantastic Vela Kuti and his song Zombie. Thanks for listening. And I hope you join me for the next year of From Alpha to Omega. Tell him to go quench, No break, no job, no sense, Go and kill, go and die, go and quench, put up all the bars. Go and quench, go and kill, go and die, put up all the bars. Go and die. Quench.